What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Comet ML Open Office Hours powered by the Arts of Data Science. Super excited to have you guys here. See a couple of my friends in the chat here. We got Tor, we got Akshay, we got my wonderful co-host, Ayodele, uh, Mustafa's in the room. Welcome, guys. Super, super happy to have you guys here. I'm really excited to, to see what kind of topics and questions we dig into today. Um, if you guys didn't know, Iodelli hosted a session uh, on Thursday this week. It should be up on Comet ML's uh, YouTube channel, which I'll be sure to link in the show notes. And it was a session on data pre-processing, data validation, and and things like that. Um, so give you guys a, a second or two to kind of uh, to, to settle in. If you got questions, put them into the chat. That way we can queue you up in line. Um, but while while we're waiting for you guys to 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 warm up here um Ideally, talk to us about talk to us about this this uh concept of data validation i mean you know that that's something that that i feel like i hear a lot but i don't really know if i understand what it means so like when we talk about data validation what is it that we mean yeah so i think there's a couple different things and the data validation typically comes in the like eba process um, but first of all, making sure I think you're documenting your data set. So um, something that I have gotten data teams used to doing is creating data sheets for every data source they have. Um, basically asking the questions, who collected the data, why it was collected, um, making sure that we have a good understanding of are there any reasons why this data set might be skewed. Um, and then we're able to use that in our modeling process so we can say definitively we know some historical context about this data, especially if it's about people. Maybe there are different methods of sampling or um, different methods of modeling we want to use because of all that we've gained from this data validation. So, um, first of all, if our data set has been manipulated before it gets to us, I think, especially when we're dealing with APIs, it's really hard to know, um, you know, even like a weather API takes the actual sensor data and rolls that into numerics that, that we can download as tabular data. So being able to understand um, what's been manipulated before it gets to us, um, as well as making sure that we're choosing the right modeling frameworks and the right uh, building the right features based off of the kinds of data we have. So um, grouping sparse classes and categorical data so we can get better um, predictions. So um, except that it's it's typically within kind of falls in EDA, sometimes under data cleaning. Um, but I would say that the vast majority of data scientists and uh, engineers don't spend enough time on the validation portion. So this like data sheet that you're talking about, is this like, is it, is there like a, a, a special sheet for it? Or is it just simply an Excel sheet that you make up or do you have like one that people can refer to? Yeah, so it is um, based off of a uh, paper that actually came out of Google. Um, you can just put it down in your own Excel sheet. If you are like a comment user, you can actually list it in your notes. And we have um, templates for trying to do the project scoping and understanding the ethical requirements, but um, being able to go through and say, what were what's the composition of my data? What were the motivations here? Um, will help out in your, in your modeling process. And is this, is this like the same idea as like a data dictionary or metadata? Is this the same kind of concept as that? 
Um, different than that, it guides modeling and it guides the later use of a data set. So I've been at um, orgs where we come in kind of a couple years into this data practice and they are like, we don't have our documentation kind of together for the models that are already in product or in flight. Um, so it's trying to attempt to deal with a lot of those issues around reproducibility and then um, really just transparency about how we've collected a data set what kind of predictions we make about people with it. That's awesome. Uh, thank you so much for, for sharing some insight into that. Uh, for everybody that just joined, welcome to the Office Hour session. Super happy to have you guys here. We're just discussing uh, at a high level this uh, uh, webinar that Iodeli had hosted a couple of days back on uh, data validation, data pre-processing. Um, so if you guys have any questions around that topic, definitely go for it. But um, at this time, like, you know, I'm, I'm happy to uh, to take questions from from the attendees here if anybody has a question um go ahead and take the floor go for it and then while that person is asking their question if you want to hold your place in line you can just go ahead and just type in i have a question right there into the chat that way i can um, make sure that we get to you in uh, in the right order um i see akshay is unmuted here i'm happy to take your question akshay go for it sure um hey good good morning good evening wherever you are from um hope you're having a great day uh, so I'm working with a group of students for a data challenge that's coming up this week. Um, they have selected a topic for COVID-19 symptoms tracker, and they have the option to leverage additional data sets, like what are the symptoms in different regions, or if there have been rent prices that went up and down because of cases in certain regions. And their job towards the end of the week is to come up with a with an interesting research question and then use these data sets to kind of answer that through visualization. So it's a one week competition and there's a rubric on which they will be uh, given points towards the end of the week. Uh, it's an interesting challenge. Uh, we had the kickoff meeting yesterday. Uh, I'm helping the students with my mentorship right now, but I wanted to ask the group here, uh, what would be like a good economic development research questions if anyone has that background, like looking at different regions and the opportunities within that region, like which area would require more supplies because they don't have enough medical care in that region. So data points like these are something that we are having a challenge right now bringing together and then coming up with a question that can answer uh, some insights within a week. That's the challenge. Like we can take as much as time we want to dig in, but they only have a week and these are undergrad students. So it's not like they have really high end analytical skills. But on a high level, what would be a good approach for them to pose those questions? That's a really, really fascinating and interesting challenge. I'd absolutely love to hear from the rest of the audience um, from this as well. What kind of questions might be interesting to ask? Right off the top of my head, I, I think something that could be interesting to look into is I, I think there are some like uh, it was like the World Bank uh, and, and WHO even they have data sets that deal with like demographic information and economic information based on particular geographies, right? So I think a, a situation like this, something I'd be interested in looking at is seeing if the uh, recovery rate of COVID-19, right? Does that recovery rate decrease as the median household increases for a certain demographic region, right? So are wealthier people getting more access to care? I think that could be a proxy question to ask from there. And a situation like this, I think uh, uh, maybe there might be opportunities to do some type of predictive 
analysis or machine learning, but I think the most interesting type of questions are going to come from like statistical uh, hypothesis testing type of questions. So that's something that comes to, to, to my mind is, is, is the recovery rate, you know, as, as median household income increases for a particular demographic or geographic region, is the actual recovery rate for COVID-19 actually increasing as well? Um, off the top of my head, that's something I think would be really interesting to look into. Uh, Ayodeli, what about you? Um, and I'm happy to hear from anybody else as well. It's a really fascinating question. Yeah, my my first thought is kind of similar in that um, are there differences geographically that, um, and maybe this is something that is more exploratory than predictive, but um, are there factors that reduce the recovery rate? So um, if it's, for example, maybe like lower income neighborhoods. Um, so maybe being able to identify some of those factors. Um, yeah, those are, those are kind of my first thoughts because especially um, as we're looking at like historical data and medical data, there's so much um, historical context around this data set that it's difficult um, to initially grasp of we're not social scientists, most of us. So, um, but I think being able to identify some of those, um, I hate to say risk factors, but like clinically like risk factors for um, having a reduced COVID recovery rate might be an interesting uh, point to look at. Another challenge that would be, oh, sorry, I'm I'm cutting somebody off, Uh, go for it. Uh, I I was saying that's really interesting. And And the additional point I wanted to say is, they have access to uh, survey data, which was conducted by Facebook in different regions. Uh, so that's a good data set to use. But my only concern with that is it could be skewed because you might have survey respondents from a particular age group. Like what if in, a, in, in, in Italy, there's only respondents in the age 25 to 40, and we can't go with the assumptions that the recovery rate is better because this is only a young crowd that's responding. So when posing research questions, um, for an academic project, should these assumptions be given a lot of stress and then build models on top of that? Or should I kind of add noise to the data or maybe not noise, but maybe normalize the data in such a way that there is no bias involved? Uh, definitely an important thing to consider, which is actually what I was about to bring up as well is uh, this is like an issue of sampling, right? Like, cause if you're comparing two different groups, you want to make sure that they're on equal footing as possible. So definitely the, the way you design your experiment and the way you're sampling is going to be very, very important, right? So if you're comparing two groups, you got to make sure they're um, as easily matched as possible, right? In, in, in a sense, I mean, something you might want to look into is um, I know that they, they look, they do this in like, in economic policy and um, uh, I think to some extent in epidemiology as well as this concept of propensity score matching. Um, So that's really, really useful for, for this type of observational study that you're doing, right? Because this is essentially what you're doing. You're not randomizing and distributing people to a a trial yourself. You're, you're collecting observational data. Um, so that, that might be an interesting keyword to research as well for your students is maybe design of observational experiments or design of experiments for observational studies. Um, Cause there's a whole host of factors that you gotta uh, take into consideration. And the core issue I think will definitely be with respect to sampling, okay. how, how you're sampling um, 
Yeah, we are thinking of using random forest because we have like 114 countries in the data set and it's not a huge data set, but I would rather that they focus their analysis on like the top five countries in each region and then go on a granular level to explain how those top five from each region kind of relate to the smaller countries or smaller regions. Um, but yeah, random forest is something we are exploring right now. It really depends on what the results look like. Yeah, well, also it depends on what it is that, that the actual question it is that you're trying to answer. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it might, might have been a, a, a bit of miscommunication there when, when I was talking about sampling, not respect to like uh, sampling with, you know, like in a random forest, like bootstrap okay. aggregation or anything like that. Sampling in terms of who are we going to include into our analysis for study, uh, okay. that type of sampling. So sampling from your population um, in terms of, you know, do we have an accurate and adequate mix of people so that whatever inference that we do make is extendable beyond this little group of people to the general population? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's an important point. Um, love to hear from anybody else. Um, what questions do you think would be interesting uh, based on the description of the data Akshay had provided us here? What are some questions that you personally would want to look into? Doesn't look like anybody wants to look into any questions. That's all good. Uh, was that at all helpful, actually, did that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I also came through your flowchart or the five steps of asking statistical questions that you shared last week. I think that's very helpful to look at what data you have, like depending on what variables you have and then posing the question. So I'm definitely forwarding that to the students. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so for people who don't know what he's talking about, you got to get on my newsletter where I send you guys free stuff every single week. You get a bunch of amazing goodies. And one of the, one of the free things that I had sent out was actually a, um, there's a couple of them. One was um, oh, five questions that you should ask yourself when you're performing any type of statistical analysis. And then the other one was a flow chart of statistical methods, uh, both of which I think you'll find very, very helpful in this case. Um, but, you know, just kind of from an intuitive level, I would say that something that you really want to take into consideration is how you are, uh, how you're sampling individuals to be included in whatever analysis it is that you're trying to do. Maybe look into some some type of sampling techniques for observational studies. Uh, a couple of keywords there for you, I think, might be uh, helpful. Um, Tor, I see you've got your hand up. Yeah, it was just like studies or interesting angles. Um, I just posted a link to where I download weekly um, COVID data and statistics, like uh, data information, uh, which I do for my own personal analysis to keep an eye and see what's going on. And one of the things that I've been looking at is the travel and the holiday versus the trend in the the number of cases, et cetera, but also now looking at the vaccination programs and the impact on the actual cases and, and the hospitalization as well versus age, uh, which is an area which is quite interesting as a lot of the quote-unquote old people who had a high likelihood of getting COVID and getting sick from it what is the impact on the younger generation, which is most likely is that's what you're seeing in the new cases or is it still the older uh, generation? So, I mean, there's lots of angles here. Um, one of the things I looked at, for example, I live in Nice in France and uh, Europe, you know, people traveled last summer. And the funny thing is, is that in the streets, people didn't fly last year in the summer. They were taking the train or they were taking cars to travel in Europe. And here in this, 
we would see a lot of cars from Britain, Holland, Belgium, and a few of the Eastern Bloc countries, the old Eastern Bloc countries. And, you know, a couple of months later, those were also the countries where you saw a lot of increases of lockdowns as well. Now, that correlation I can't prove or say that it is, but, you know, walking around the streets here and seeing all the Dutch cars and it just kind of gave me that feeling. And then, well, at the end of the day, whether it's a real correlation or not, uh, it's an assumption, hypothesis. <laughs> so there's lots of things to look at. And like uh, Odile mentioned as well, uh, poverty, non-poverty, rich areas, rich countries. Uh, you can even bring it up on the country level, look at the GDP levels, um, to see if there's any correlation, medical health services um, in the various countries. Um, so, you know, lots of angles, lots. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. There's that really kind of just limited by your own curiosity. Um, well, you know, curiosity and what type of data you can get your hands on, obviously, but um, definitely looks like there's a wide range of possibilities that you can look into. And I'll definitely, we'll leave this this topic open uh, through the end of the session today. So if anybody comes up with an idea that they want to share, definitely go ahead and either drop that into the chat or just unmute yourself and let us know. Um, so I noticed a few people joined in. Welcome everybody to the office hours. So if you have a question, just type in, I have a question right there into the chat and we'll hold your place in line. I see a question in the chat from Mustafa and I'll flip this one over to uh, Iodeli here. And Mustafa is asking the difference between data validation and data cross-validation. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, data validation is more so before we actually enter in this model building process. So um, understanding the skew and the different summary statistics about a data set, whereas cross-validation is more so um, trying to test how well our model does uh, on new data. So um, really when we're looking at testing and validation um, data sets, if we're able to use cross-validation to see if there's overfitting issues. So um, more post-modeling process and pre-modeling process. And speaking of cross-validation, uh, part of your talk, you're discussing data pre-processing as well. And you know, this is probably a question that, um, that maybe might be a little bit open-ended. I don't know if there really is a right answer or wrong answer. Um, like anything in data science, it depends. So at what point do you do your trained test split uh, with respect to data pre-processing and the whole cross-validation thing? Where does this kind of fit into the pipeline of events? Yeah, I would say for me, it has mostly happened after my all my feature engineering is done. So um, I've made combinations, interaction features, um, and basically then uh, try and uh, do all this before, right before modeling and building new models. Awesome. Thank you very much for that. So looking into the chat, there is uh, no current questions in the chat. So if anybody wants to go ahead and it uh, looks like Tor has a question, go for it. So Tor, go ahead and uh, put yourself on unmute 
folks, while Tor is asking this question, if you want to hold your place in line, go ahead and just type that right there into the chat that you have a question. Tor, go for it. Thanks. Just to give you a little context, um, it's funny. When I started joining this group, um, what I've noticed, in, for example, in LinkedIn, the articles and people, postings, et cetera, that I'm starting to see now is becoming more and more AI, ML-related topics. Um, and, you know, in one way, I don't mind. But in the other way, I'm starting to lose the old, quote-unquote, financial topics that I used to see and, you know, the prioritizations. And the question I have is really... I'm assuming this is a trend in Facebook where you become more and more radicalized and goes more and more extreme due to these algorithms. The question I have is that what can I do from a user point of view to compensate for that, um, to bring the information I get back more in line with what I want than what's actually being fed to me? That's one thing. The other side is the people that are making these algorithms, analysis, et cetera, what parameters are they building in to try and minimize that trend in their analysis? And I assume it's machine learning in the back end as well. So to answer the second question, I wish I knew because I'd be gaming that algorithm so much and getting a hundred million followers by now. Um, but I think, in, but to, to kind of answer that question more concretely, there might be some type of content recommendation algorithms in the background. So um, maybe that's kind of like the keyword you're looking for. Um, so recommendation engines and, you know, there's there's a, a whole slew of different methodologies for that. Which one any given social media platform is using, they, they kind of um, definitely keep that proprietary and, and don't share that bit of the algorithm. But to answer your first question, um, so one thing about LinkedIn is LinkedIn, they're kind of, from from my understanding, the way their philosophy for content recommendation is delivering you stuff that you find interesting. Uh, they had like a certain catchphrase around it. I can't, it escapes me right now. Um, but I think one thing that you could do if you want to get more of that financial stuff back into your timeline is start interacting more and more with the people and the content that, that you want to interact with. And you'll start getting fed more and more of that. Um, so maybe I wasn't uh, understanding the question correctly, but I'd love to hear from you, Ayadeli, um, as well. Yeah, I definitely kind of took it the same way you did. Um, if you are, let's say, I would say maybe like Twitter, I know you can also follow specific hashtags. Um, and then you start to see those recommendations. And I've been seeing this um, in either the search under your moments or just on your um, timeline, you'll start to see like data science pops up because I follow and interact with a ton of people who post about data science. Um, and same kind of recommendation for LinkedIn. Um, it's weird. We have to kind of think about it as we are the users and by certain actions kind of put us into these um, categories they probably have for like certain interests. So um, the more you are liking, commenting things that are um, about finance in general, the more often you're, you will probably um, see these things in your, in your feed naturally. And I just looked it up that uh, catchphrase I was talking about. Now this is coming from an article in 2019. So not terribly outdated, but, you know, the pace of technology, everything is moving quick. And I'll go ahead and paste that here. But essentially uh, what it's saying is this, is that the uh, the mantra of the LinkedIn feed is people, you know, talking about the things you care about. So 
if you wanted to get more and more of that uh, data science into your, I'm sorry, that finance into your feed, then interact with the people who are posting that stuff. Um, and, you know, that's probably going to be the best way to do it. To answer your question there, Tor? It, it does. But uh, I, I think from my point of view, the, the other side of it is even more important is that what is being built in to control these algorithms um, to manage that process so it doesn't go way too far uh, to the left or the right or up or down or into finance or the other from more from a program perspective or designing perspective like what considerations if any are there taken now yeah that's a good question wish i had the answer to that um there's an excellent documentary on netflix that um, i watched towards the end of last year it was all about this um this concept, man, the name of that is escaping me as well, but it was all about the uh, the content that you get on social media. Um, yeah, the social dilemma, I think it was called the movie. That's the one, yes, the social yeah. dilemma. Yeah, that's the one. Um, but yeah, I mean, how like, the, we're never really going to know what mm-hmm. their alg- how their algorithms work because that, that is proprietary. I see a comment here uh, that algorithms get biased to monetize the platform that's true i mean the the whole point of these social media platforms is to get you to engage with the with the app and keep you engaged in that app um so to that extent that linkedin's mantra of people you know talking about things you care about um getting you to continually use use their app i think it's you know what's going to drive that algorithm um but yeah i'll give you an example because one of the things that I'm working on, I'm going to use my own project as an example, is that based on a questionnaire, it will then generate sub-questions or to generate a program. And when you're using this program during a fewer period, you will add, delete, etc. The idea, of course, is that when there are lots of people doing this, when you come back, the system is going to bring it in analyze the information it gets and then start feeding into future processes and this is where i'm starting to get concerned that if a certain or a large number of people use only certain parts of it will what do i do to control to make sure that we don't lose things that it won't be included even though they may not have thought about it and how is that programmed into the algorithms, for example? Yeah, I don't have a good answer to that question. Yeah, a good one. yeah I, think, I think it's really hard to say, especially because, unfortunately, organizations are so... Um, there is a massive lack of transparency in the belt. Uh, and a lot of these things that you mentioned, they could have more transparency on than they currently do. So... It's difficult. I think I would probably um, lean towards saying that maybe they are taking a couple um, mitigation steps so that they don't go too far. But I would um, cautiously generalize that they're probably not spending as much time doing that um, because unfortunately, even though it kind of is a negative for users, it's still a positive for them as far as like monetizing their platform. but yeah, I think it would be really interesting to have that. That may be something that um, 
this supposed like FDA for algorithms that's kind of been tossed around for a while. That might be something that they're able to expose or at least make sure is um, public knowledge or the public has uh, some way of kind of auditing these processes. I think we'll see more of that with regulation, but it's just really incredibly hard um, to know what they're really doing. And I just wanted to, uh, Tor, I just read a great book. It's called Weapons of Math Destruction. It's from 2018, but it's still a great read. And it pretty much touches on these algorithms that are being fed this data that's already biased. And if humans aren't updating that data with new, uh, you know, like monitoring those algorithms and updating it based on how it should be, those algorithms are going to give themselves a feedback loop of what they're already doing. So it's like garbage in, garbage out. That's what ends up happening to these algorithms. So we're so, um, you know, all these articles we read and stuff, we kind of take it as is. Like, oh, uh, this algorithm was created by Facebook. They have X amount of data. This algorithm must be right. So in this book, they actually, um, she's a data scientist, and she goes through algorithms in different industries and stuff, and just from schools, how it's skewed to, you know, the voting in the U.S. and everything. So once you read it, I think you'll start you'll stop asking this question because right now every algorithm we have out there is pretty much it's biased to a degree and like Iodeli said um, we need to create a framework that has rules and regulations but right now when you're looking at these bank companies it's private data so when you question why is this like they quantify you so they can't ask me my race, but they'll ask me my postal code. Based on my postal code with data science, you can tell if I live in a rich neighborhood or a poor neighborhood. So even though they're not asking the question, they're still quantifying you as rich or poor, technically. So they're kind of found a loop around it. So for what you're trying to do, I would suggest like read that book. It's a super easy read. She's a data scientist. She's worked in the field. She was there during the 2008 uh, crisis. And she'll pretty much tell you everything that's lacking in these algorithms. And right now, the sad part is it's hard to get the regulations because it's capitalism, right? Everybody wants to make profit for their shareholders. So trying to get some sort of a regulation out there is, it's going to take time. Very, very I hope that helps. Yeah. yeah, thank you. That, that, oh, it does. Thank you. Thank you. That helped me. That was very good. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to add something to Harpreet. Uh, yeah. Adding on to Jasbir's comments, uh, there's an organization called the Algorithmic Justice League. Uh, they created a, 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 a documentary called Coded Bias, and that was an amazing show, and that shows how much bias we have in our AI algorithms, and, you know, from uh, job hunting to, um, you know, like like what Jasper said, the financial aspects of it and so forth. And they did an amazing uh, documentary and I would highly encourage everyone to watch it because it's called Coded Bias. And, you know, even for housing, you know, people who, people of color who needs to, uh, who needs housing and how they track them and things like facial recognition and stuff like that. Uh, amazing how and and the movie uh, the book that she meant just been mentioned math of uh, what math of destruction or something like that 
weapons uh, of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. And she is also in that uh, documentary and and some and quite a few of notable uh, AI uh, ethics folks are in there as well. So it's an amazing uh, documentary. It really kind of opens your eyes up and. And, you know, wondering all these algorithms that's out there and how they are being coded and so forth. And, you know, not only the data can be biased, but even the algorithms that they create can be biased too. But, yeah, but I think more and more uh, AI ethics is coming up a lot these days and people are trying to create something called the FDA for algorithms. So I think uh, this is a good thing, really. I think this then you know you will have equality in all areas, whether it's housing, education, or employment, and so forth. Yeah, that's all I wanted to add. Oh, thank you very much. And, I appreciate yeah. this. Yeah. And the person who's running this algorithm, just to make, is a Rhodes Scholar. Her name is Joy Bolomani. Yeah, she's pretty prominent, and she's yeah, she. I mean, she's from MIT. I think she's uh, MIT. Yeah, MIT, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be. Uh, digging into these resources and hopefully I can get some of these people onto the podcast. Cause this is an area that I would definitely love to explore yeah, more. So yeah. thank you very and, much yeah, for watch that show. And you find a lot of notable people in there. You can read like Merv, Hick, Hick, uh, Hick, I forget her name and Cindy, I think who wrote the book of the, the, the mass of destruction or something. Yeah. Quite a few people in there that you can definitely hit up. I think it was definitely helpful too, because we're starting to see this question around ethics Unfortunately, because AI has kind of spread into every industry, so it's it's not even close to being isolated to tech and software. Um, we are using it in healthcare, trying to triage patients. Um, I think especially when we're looking at these public works kinds of algorithms, there is a much bigger need for them to be transparent than let's say like Netflix's personalization, right? Like um, the big, the worst thing that can happen is you don't like a movie on Netflix, but if we're thinking about triaging patients in emergency rooms, the worst that can happen is that you are delayed care and we have to, especially in industries like healthcare, policing, um, and a lot of times even finance, like thinking about the harm that could be caused to a user. So um, some things in finance may not seem like that big of a deal when we're like in these organizations. So um, getting denied for a credit card may seem kind of average, but we're so removed from like an individual user's experience. Like that can be a big deal for people. So we have to, um, especially with like data about people, um, have stricter uh, ethical standards for being transparent about, hey, these algorithms are being used with the facial recognition systems and especially I'll mentioned the UK because having um, public CCTV cameras is a lot more acceptable and and people are comfortable with it. It's kind of the norm. Um, But in those scenarios, every algorithm that's used on the general public um, should be open for the general public to also criticize, should be open to for us to look at the data that they're using, for us to um, investigate how decisions are being made. And it gets us closer to having like an appeals process. So like this whole idea for the FDA of algorithms um, is so that, you know, people can say, I think maybe you guys made the, the wrong decision here. 
And then we can go back and debug for users number seven and 12, why we made specific decisions. And then either we, okay, maybe assess that we made the incorrect decision and either change what their that outcome is, or we are able to offer an explanation to users of why. So looking at feature importances is fairly easy, um, but that's not something that organizations really allow us to do right now. Um, so I think we are getting there. <laughs> Um, but I think we're very much still in the first stages of like awareness um, and awareness in organizations that we have profound power. So like um, I went from doing product analytics to working on things that were like life and death data scenarios. So trying to identify weapons with sense of data. Um, we had a much higher threshold for what was acceptable error than, oh, I'm just predicting user segments. You know, um, I think we have to, and we're starting to just as, take this with more severity, um, especially in like public <laughs> kinds of algorithms. Man, this is giving me, a lot of good stuff to think about. I hope you guys have been uh, absorbing this as well. Um, definitely an important area in our field to really think about and discuss. And, you know, hopefully we can get some of these people onto the podcast and ask them some more questions and help share some of this knowledge. Um, another book that is on my reading list, I just recently downloaded it, is um, Invisible Women, uh, which apparently is all about um, how several algorithms are essentially biased against women. Um, so another book to, to add to the list there. Um, Tor, thank you very much for asking that question and getting this discussion going around that. I appreciate that. So we'll go ahead and continue on. I see there's a couple questions in the chat. So I'll start with the um, uh, earliest one here from Mustafa. And folks, if you guys have a question, please do feel free to uh, hold your place in line by just saying you have a question. Then we'll go ahead and um, add you to the queue there. So a question here from Mustafa. Uh, would you please briefly describe a whole timeline of data from pre-processing to generating insight? Um, Mustafa, if you're still here, definitely go ahead and uh, unmute yourself and and maybe add some more color commentary about, around that. Um. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, do you hear me? Yeah, there's a little bit of an uh, echo, but... Um, Okay. Um, Could hear you. Uh, okay. Uh, um, I, I just uh, this, this question. This question came from that uh, I am uh, an absolute beginner to data science and machine learning. So I, I just want uh, want um, to get uh, a plain view uh, of of the whole process of of uh, from the data pre-processing, data validation, uh, and uh, through working on on the data using uh, which model. I just want to get a general point of view uh, of the whole process. Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's a huge question as well. I feel like there's a number of different ways we can talk about that because, I mean, like anything in data science, it, it does depend. Um, but I guess uh, I'll, I'll turn this one over to Ayudeli because I think this might be based on uh, the conversation we're having regarding the course that you had um, created. So yeah. talk to us about that, that this, this whole kind of a timeline or, or a series of steps? Mm -hmm. So from a high level, we would start with basically data acquisition. So um, one of multiple ways, sometimes this is pulling from an API, running a Python script to scrape the internet for things like tweets. Um, and then we go into the pre-processing um, and the 
uh, EDA as well as data pre-processing. So we want to understand, sorry, when I say EDA, I mean exploratory data analysis. So basically looking at things in our data set, like our statistics, the ranges, the standard deviations for different columns. And based off of the uh, understanding and insights we gain there, we're able to use that to inform our feature selection and model selection. So once we have this clean data set, we're able to go ahead and create new features. So um, this is huge and uh, mostly because this has a direct impact on how well our models perform. So uh, we want to select features that are correlated with our target variables. And then we're able to also, let's say we're dealing with um, a fairly small data set, we're also able to augment data. So add in additional um, exotic kind of columns or fields that just help um, provide more color and make it easier for us to make these predictions. So we go through this step to select what features we want to use to predict a certain thing. Um, and after that, we're able to start building models and then exploring how well they do. So um, the model selection piece is also really huge. So you have your features ready to go based on if they're mostly numerical or mostly categorical, um, based on the kinds of processing you could do. So for like categorical data, you could do um, like one hot encoding. So instead of a single category for color and the context of it would be green, blue, yellow, you could have a column for green, blue, yellow, and they are um, zero if a specific uh, example is not that within that range and then they would be one so a example would have a one in the column for blue and zeros in the columns for the other categories so based off of all that work we're then able to start building models understanding if we are trying to classify something so um, basically tell two or more objects apart or if we're trying to predict the number for something and doing more regression modeling and then we go into the evaluation. So we have experimented, built um, 10 different models, and we want to understand how they compare against each other um, and which model wins, which is the um, most valuable for what we're looking at. So um, the biggest thing I can say here is that it is most commonly not just accuracy, that's the most important thing. So um, there are other evaluation metrics like precision and recall, things like F1 score, and they may seem just kind of like jargony now. Um, but it's important to know that based off of your specific instance, so let's say you're in healthcare, um, it's easy to discuss with your team whether false positives or false negatives are more important to, to avoid. So um, based off of things like your context, you're able to evaluate these models. And from that, um, kind of finally comes this last step of insight. So um, you're able to see if you do have a good model, um, we are able to then look at the feature importances. So go in and say for predicting the um, probability of a specific healthcare outcome, the um, location, age, and X factors are the most important. So I hope that kind of gives you a high level understanding of what you would do at each stage. That was absolutely awesome. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So Mustafa, did that, that kind of answer your question there? That was really, really well uh, 
put together and in depth. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Odeli. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I got a question here for you, Odeli. Something that is a head scratcher for me. What exactly is an insight? Right. Let's say I'm doing some exploratory data analysis and, you know, I'm looking at shapes of my you know, distributions for whatever feature it is I'm looking at. Like, is me just being able to identify that, oh, this particular feature follows a gamma distribution. Is that considered an insight? I would say in a way, yes, um, because it can lead you to choosing specific um, modeling, uh, choosing specific models. I think of an insight as almost a small piece of data that we then use to guide other decisions. So um, I think in general, data science is kind of tasked with finding these insights about large data sets and then either reporting to stakeholders, we should do X, Y, or Z. Um, so I consider it that way. And that our insights about when we're doing EDA um, are really there to, they're the things that guide all of the other modeling decisions. So um, let's say one column has an extreme amount of outliers. Um, we're able to maybe say, maybe this shouldn't um, be a feature that we use. Um, so in that case, it would still be considered an insight to me. Is domain knowledge, domain expertise, is that required to produce an insight or can we produce insights without actually having that domain knowledge? I think that's really hard because the best insights um, come from having some level of domain knowledge. So I think when we talk about domain knowledge, it seems like we're only uh, recognizing like subject matter experts. Like you really, really have a strong grasp and experience with one specific thing. Um, let's say healthcare, for example. And I would say that we don't always need that domain knowledge, um, but it's but it's helpful and it is um, impactful. So I suggest, especially if like me, I would be the worst person to like work on a healthcare data set. Um, I would definitely suggest still taking some time to truly understand your context, understand, um, especially in healthcare and a lot of other industries, working with the doctors and radiologists on the ground who end up using these models um, is something that is it, it, like impossibly, uh, it's, it's so hard to uh, understate that why it's needed. Um, because I think so many of us, as, as people who are interested in data science, um, on most of these teams were pretty far removed from the actual models and how they get used. So I think being able to somewhat embed ourselves um, with the people who use our models. Um, a good example is my last role was working with um, risk managers at companies like Uber and Lyft to try and understand they have millions of drivers. Which ones are the most risky? Which ones um, should they uh, give certain kinds of um, driving courses to? So like, hey, we've noticed that you tend to speed. Here are some speeding classes or here's some aggressive driving classes. And being able to identify what should go into making that decision was incredibly hard. So I was like, I've got to schedule meetings and sit down with these risk managers and understand what they already do. Um, 
So overall, <laughs> uh, domain knowledge is great. And if there's anything you can do to try and get um, more of that or closer to the situation, it will definitely help how we build these models and hopefully build them closer to what uh, people use in the national need. Thank you very much, Idele. I really appreciated that. I know the audience did as well. So we got a question here from Davron. I'm slowly making my way through the chat, guys. So um, go ahead. And if you have a question, um, now is the time to go ahead and make sure you add that right there into the chat. That way we can go ahead and get to it before the session ends here. So Davron is asking a question. If I want to build a portfolio project, do I have to look at the data set first and then define the problem? This is one of those classic chicken and egg type of questions, I think. Yeah. Um, I personally feel like first you have to have an interesting question to attempt to answer. Then you have to find the data to help support your progress against answering that question. But in between there, you might need to tweak the question you're asking based on the data that you have. So to me, it's like a little bit of a back and forth, back and forth. Um, but my personal philosophy is you, you know, I, I say start with the question and then find the data to answer that question and then, and then move in that direction. But given kind of the, the landscape of what um, you know, the self-learning tools that are out there, we're typically just looking for data sets and then coming up with questions that way, which I don't think is necessarily a wrong way to do anything either. Um, so either approach, I think, is it's, it's reasonable. What about you, Ayodele? Yeah, I tend to lean towards um, starting with the question. So I say that mostly because um, a lot of the data that you can easily find um, either wasn't collected or made for modeling, or um, we have a hard time admitting when we don't really, when we can't really answer questions with the data set. Um, I think there's an underlying assumption, especially for um, data folks, that we're going to be able to find in something interesting regardless. And that's not always the case, but it feels more defeating um, when we started with data and we may be answering questions that aren't necessary or aren't, um, I know this is like project uh, portfolio related, but in industry, they maybe aren't relevant or aren't important to answer for our product. Um, so I would say for the most part, try and hypothesize an interesting question um, and then track down the data. I think on the portfolio project piece, it'll also show that you can um, really do this data collection and wrangling. So um, I know when I was really starting, um, it was really hard to demonstrate, yes, I can go like build whatever Python script I need to to scrape this website or get data from this API. Um, I think by starting with that question um, and then showing that you can go get the data, even if it's not the data that matches up perfectly with what you need, um, I should give you a couple extra points on that portfolio side. 100% agree with that. I absolutely love that, um, that, that kind of philosophy. And I mean, you think about it, right? The, if you're doing a data science project, you're trying to find answers, right? And typically, in order for you to find answers, you need to start with a question. So you kind of want to think of it in that way as well. Akshay had some really great um insight here to share actually go ahead and uh and and share that so it's not trapped there in the chat yeah of course so i'd like to use an example on a project that i worked on um i worked in the forensics data science practice uh so a lot of the work we did was looking at financial information for potential fraud or risks to the company um for one of the projects we had a sales data set and as a data scientist we were just 
expected to kind of build visualizations to show if the sales trends are going up and down um, at a particular point in time. Uh, when you ask about whether to come up with a question first and then find the data, it goes both ways. Uh, so in this particular case, we requested the client for additional data. So since we already had sales, we, all, we also got the billing and the delivery details, which is um, where the products for the company have been sold and who are actually purchasing those items. As a data scientist, I only saw trends going up and down, but I didn't really understand what risks the company would have. Um, and this goes back to the question of having the domain knowledge. So when, when we sat with the business stakeholders, we realized that it was a potential channel stuffing scheme, which means that some company locations would inflate their sales towards the end of the month to show that they have maximized their profits. And then in the next month, they will have those orders returned back, which means that there was no actual sale ever made. They just faked those sales to show that their profits went up and then they returned those back in the inventory. And we only found that after we had that additional billing and delivery data sets. So sometimes coming up with a question first and then asking for additional data could help. But at times, if you have enough data, it's more about understanding what problem you wanna solve. What are the insights that your business wants to take? And this goes hand in hand with the business and technology. Like, like I said, as a data scientist or an analyst, I will build interesting visualizations, but I wouldn't really know what my business or senior management team is trying to find in terms of risks for the client. And that's where these conversations help because you kind of see the problem from different perspectives. I, I hope that uh, helps. Yeah, absolutely. Love that response. Thank you very much for, for sharing your experience. Um, so hopefully that, that answered your, uh, your question there. Um, I forgot who it was that asked that. It was Davron. So Davron, uh, if you got any follow-up questions on that, uh, go ahead and let us know. Thank you very much to all of you. Yes, it was very good. Right on. Thank you. So next question I have here is uh, going to be coming from uh, Quentin. Yes, Quentin, go for it. Hi, everyone. Um, the question is in the line of what you guys have been talking about. So first of all, I agree completely with uh, what Ayudili was saying, what everything that was said uh, about the domain knowledge. I think if you don't have domain knowledge, like you cannot relate uh, all of the work you're going to do in the data set, the analysis to the actual uh, purpose, the, to add value to the business. And um, I have read recently a book. Uh, I think it's pretty well known. Maybe you guys know it. It's uh, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Uh, and I don't know if you guys read it, it's, it's really amazing. And, and the metaphor inside of this uh, book uh, is about a garden, the garden being your mind that you have to take care of. Uh, and within the garden, you have a lighthouse and the lighthouse is like your purpose in life. Uh, and basically, if you have the lighthouse uh, lighted up, uh, you can focus your mind on this and achieve way more. And I think the problem statement in the data science, uh, data science uh, problem is the lighthouse. So if you have the problem in mind, then you can uh, relate all of the data, all of the research that you're going to do uh, to answer that question. You can focus your mind on the, the, the problem and, and solve the problem way easier. The question uh, regarding all of this is, how do you guys go about uh, creating the narrative? Because at the end of the day, even if you do an amazing work, you have to sell it to business people. And if they are not sold, then you might have been doing this work for nothing. So... How do you guys like work? Uh, are you doing a lot of analysis and then you try to 
correlates uh, the visualizations that you've made afterwards? Uh, how do you, or do you have like uh, some kind of methodology to follow through the analysis of your data set to build the narrative or how do you go about it? It's a very, very good question. And I, I just want to say, dude, like Robin Sharma is amazing. I'm a huge Robin Sharma fan. Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, Secret Letters from the Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, both of those amazing books, 5AM Club. Uh, I'm going to read the second one then. Yeah, they're, they're, I'm trying to get Robin Sharma to come on the podcast. Um, oh, that would be good. Yeah, I'm trying, trying my damned hardest. Um, by, by the way, I didn't, I didn't check how uh, it, but uh, what this story is this story only uh, imagined, or is it based on some reality? Uh, Monk who sold his Ferrari. It's uh, all, all of Robin Sharma's books are pretty much they're they're fiction books, but they're uh, like I, I guess more narrative nonfiction than fiction. Right. So the, that's kind of like the, the genre I would classify that as narrative nonfiction because he's giving practical business advice, practical, you know, scientific mm -hmm. advice, but wrapped in a narrative type of um, in a way. And you know what? I mean, speaking of narrative nonfiction, I think that's probably a good way for you to um, communicate your insights and results to stakeholders. And I'm sure Ideally has a lot more experience in this realm than I do. So I can't wait to hear from her on this. Um, but I will say that. There is a excellent course on LinkedIn learning by Doug Rose on like data storytelling that I highly recommend. And what I found helpful is really trying to convey what it is that you've uncovered in the data in the form of a story, but in such a way where it's maybe not looking at everything holistically, but painting the picture of a individual user, an individual customer, right? And really driving the point home with examples about that customer, if that makes sense. Um, I'd love to hear from Ayodele on this. Yeah, I definitely think one of the ways that I've worked to create these narratives um, versus by trying to understand what they're really doing. So trying to, um, I've completed an analysis, I have some insights and I'm ready to share. A lot of what I'll do is go to either the team who requested it or the stakeholders who requested it um, and ask what they plan on doing with the insights. So um, a good example is I was, at a at company um, and a lot of the time that I was spending was doing um, marketing kind of analysis. So um, they came to me with their request and they basically wanted something that would um, predict the gender of a user because their insights was that they noticed um, men and women tended to use the product in different ways. And so they're like, well, based off of first name, can we just to try, try to predict um, gender? So I did a lot of digging and asking why over and over um, until I got the, the nugget that kind of led how I could tell this story. Um, so basically they uh, wanted to do this whole thing just so they could understand power users, really inactive users. Um, and so I ended up just pitching a uh, consumer segmentation model um, and then creating that. And when I went back and basically tried to persuade them um, to use this for how they were uh, addressing in-app notifications and push messages um, for the app, I was able to go and say, well, we are noticing that different users use our app in different ways, but it's deeper than you thought. You thought it was just um, by gender, looking at men and women and how they interacted. And I would say, well, we actually found six different types of consumer segments from power users to diversity.
diversified users who go to a lot of different kinds of gyms and do different activities, all the way down to inactive users. So I kind of pitched my work as um, a an ethical extension of the question they were trying to get to. Um, so for building those narratives, having a good understanding of um, why they care, what's important to the stakeholders, um, and then building that, especially with a narrative, because those stories stick with people more so than um, stats do. So I think we tend to try and just say, say statistics because to us, it's like, well, I'm just telling facts. Um, but that's not as memorable as, especially for like non-technical folks and people who are making decisions. It's not as memorable as, say, walking through the process of um, maybe one example user. And so from all the insights you've gained, you can say, there's this hypothetical user that does X, Y, and Z, and then try to build your story around that. Okay, so basically you say that, uh, so thank you for your answer. Uh, basically, you say that going from their point of view, like uh, if they were thinking uh, maybe the gender was the main reason why people were acting differently. So you would go from that point and tell the narrative based on this and add on this based on your findings, but in a, in a business way, like not, not entering into the technical things that we love and everything, but with something that would create some emotional uh, way to memorize what we are talking about, especially regarding the business impact that this can actually have on the business and not just the technical uh, insights. Yeah, exactly that. For um, a solid-ish example, with my story there, I would say, um, okay, you can imagine user number 12,000. They signed up for the app because they saw this ad on social media. Um, they came onto the app. They uh, it kind of walked them through that process um, of this hypothetical user or the, the insights that I've gained. Um, and so later on in conversations after this project was done, the marketing team would be like, oh, yeah, remember that one fake user? They did this, this and this. And so it's so much easier for them to remember those kinds of insights and stories. Um, and they would bring that up consistently. So, um, hey, we're interested in users who take a different path. What kinds of messages should we be sending to them? So, um, yeah, yeah, trying to somewhat lean away from our technical inclinations to recite stats um, and more so try to build a story we can have the fake names, the fake examples of a monk and a Ferrari, you know, um, but those are things that business people especially will remember. Yes. And people remember names and stories and things like that. So I think, sorry, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off there. So as much as you can personalize it as possible, the better, right? So um, I'll go, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. So go ahead and, and uh, finish, finish up your thought there, then I'll, then I'll jump in. No, so, so I just wanted to add uh, regarding a uh, different question as well, because you mentioned uh, how to build um, a project portfolio and I asked the same question basically last week. Um, so regarding the narrative, like how do you go about writing it properly in your code as well? Like practically speaking, When you build a project so i think that the narrative aspect would probably be more incorporated in like the executive summary or stakeholder presentation type of thing um so in terms of how you'd incorporate it in your code i mean you probably need to code out um whatever you need to to pull out one example and slice and dice data 
um, mm-hmm. and, and for one particular segment of users, maybe you can put all that into a separate notebook where you do that for yourself, but I wouldn't present that notebook to any stakeholders. I would just incorporate as much of that into the presentation, into the executive summary uh, as possible. And I would just add on to that that um, the that's something you, you can also go over verbally. So whenever I, whenever I've been in interview processes um, that have had me like walk through a past project, um, I may show like a Jupyter notebook and walk them through these things. But at the end, I always have like my five bullet points of uh, that that storytelling piece. So because I did this modeling and came up with these results, um, I was able to find X, Y, and Z and and frame it in a way that um, within a very short conversation, they have an understanding that like, oh, okay, I I did do the process of framing how I would talk about this um, project and talk about what I found. And it may not, and it's okay if it doesn't necessarily um, exist as like a written paper kind of at the end of your project. Um, Sometimes it's okay to, if you know you're kind of facing an interview where you can just talk through it, um, save some of those points for that too. Okay. Thanks. I think another good example is like when you're doing some type of clustering, for example, right? Like if you're doing some type of clustering and you've got some number of features that you used, I mean, you don't want to tell a stakeholder that, yeah, we use this particular clustering algorithm. And then because we used this distance formula to identify whatever the closest people in this particular segment, uh, you know, you don't want to dive into those details instead what you want to say is you know what here's a cluster you know one and cluster one we call these our mom and pop shops why are they mom and pop shops well because this is the type of volume they see in terms of uh, traffic foot traffic and sales and you know you're using the data about that particular cluster to create a persona or create a story about that cluster right another one could be you know this cluster over here, cluster five, we call these our, our fast movers. Why are they our fast movers? Because, you know, as soon as they get inventory, they tend to have a quick turnaround time. They don't hold much inventory in stock, you know, it's things like that, right? Um, that could help bring that cluster to, to life. Hopefully that made sense. Yeah, yeah, completely. Awesome. Any other questions on that point? All right. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, so next question I see in the chat here um, from Tor is, uh, do you eliminate data feeds? Tor, do you want to uh, elaborate on that question? Uh, a little bit of context. Uh, I just wanted quickly to respond to your bullet points. Um, as I work in, in auditing, uh, you know, you go in, you talk to your clients, you get a picture of where their concerns lie. This is kind of giving you a context. And when I mention three plus two bullet points, what I mean by that is really that the first three bullet points is trying to respond to what the client wants and what they're looking for. So you're actually answering whether it goes yes or no, maybe in the storytelling around it. But the plus two, that's where you have the value added. In other words, when I go back and I've done my analysis of the transactional data, contracts, evaluations, then I will normally have two points, which I'm looking at saying, well, in addition to what you mentioned, here's some two more. Of course, I have a whole bunch of lists in addition to that, but that is really just to give them to come back that, yeah, you understood what they were looking for, and B, you now also have an analyze and 
providing them with more. So, but I never have more than five bullet points on the slide. That's it. Uh, very, very short. The, the question I had about the uh, elimination in quotation mark, what that is, is that very often, for example, in my case, I get data which is unusable. Okay, it means it has no relevance to what I'm going to do. And I'm sure that you're dealing with the same thing in your fields when you get all these different data feeds that are coming in. And by eliminating, okay, I never delete data because I always want to have the source original, but I will review, take them away from you. Do you do a similar process in your processes where you actually uh, turn around and tell the client that this particular data feed you're wasting money and time on it um, by generating it. And this is not required. It's something that in the long run, most likely won't need it. I don't know how you deal. Yeah, I would say that this is something I've definitely done, um, especially when looking at um, data that's not really helpful for modeling. So um, I think that a lot of organizations set out to, let's just collect it and maybe we need it. Maybe we'll use it down the line. Um, and I think that uh, we kind of end up in situations like you're in where um, there's a lot that's not really useful for um, predicting on a specific goal or, or getting you to meet those KPIs as far as um, the kind of analytics process. So in my experience, yeah, there have been many times where I'm like, there are plenty of tables that um, aren't really used for model training or in my like data science process. Yeah, absolutely love that feedback. I was gonna, I was, I was thinking way too granular there for a second. I was like, oh, is this a feature selection question? But then towards the end, I realized that actually no, it's not a feature selection. It's more about people who have that mindset of if we can collect it, then why don't we collect it? Um, so yeah, that's that's a that's a very interesting point. Not one that I've had to deal with personally, but uh, I'm, I'm also the type of person that uh, I just love collecting data. So oh yeah, <laughs> but but this is the challenge, you know, because you know with management and whoever you're dealing with, key stakeholders. Oh, this would be nice to have. This is nice to have. This is nice to have. But all these nice to have, which is not really quote unquote necessary or required or or even has any value by eliminating them you're also eliminating cost in processes leading up to that data being collected um, because you're collecting the data you have systems uh, you have to pay for storage and data capabilities etc you have people analyzing it and then of course you have all the people getting data that technically is just wasting their time uh, including the programmers and uh, the data analysts etc so I'm just curious if you actually have physically gone back and said, you know what, why don't you consider a value eliminating this particular data collection process because it has really no value to your operation, your business or uh, assistance. The best way to do that probably is by doing exactly what you said, right? Like let's map out all the costs and clearly spell it out. Like in order for us to collect, for example, this particular data set, here's all the costs that it actually costs, right? There's a real world process that occurs to generate this data and then all the downstream effort to collect it, clean it, and then push it somewhere and, and have it saved. What does that actually cost, right? And then probably tie it back to them or, or rather turn the question back around to them and say, okay, great. It costs this much to collect all this data. What do you think this will be useful for? 
And how much do you think this will help you either increase profits or save money? And does that does that add up? Like, is it going to outweigh the cost? And if not, then what are we doing collecting it? But that's just and my night. And it's also a question, is it cheaper to buy it somewhere else, the data when you need it? Yeah. There's um, another evaluation process as well. So thanks. Ideally, do you got any additional points there? Um, I think it, you hit most of it on the head, but really it is about getting business folks to instead say, let's collect it all and hope we use it later and more um, inversing that process. Do we have something that we'll use this for um, doing that cost benefit analysis and then uh, making the decision to stop collecting specific kinds of data um, if they're not as valuable? question here from Davron Iodeli what is your favorite data science book that's a good question I have to like actually look at my bookshelf um I would say it's actually effective data storytelling um that's one that while I felt like I like so I transitioned into data science after working in marketing for a couple of years um my undergrad degree was in communication and I uh, had probably a little bit of hubris that I'm like, I can communicate anything. I, um, you know, I kind of know this really well, but um, that gave me solid examples of how to talk to both technical teams and non-technical folks. And I think that was the biggest gap. Um, I was coming from, I have a communications marketing background. I learned all of the technical data science stuff. I can speak to that. How do I translate that for people who um, haven't spent the time learning, learning stats, learning um, algorithmic modeling? So um, that's one of my favorites. Is that the one that's by Cole Naflick? Is that the one? Um, no, that one is Storytelling with Data. Oh, okay. um, the one on my shelf is Effective, I can have them both, Effective Data Storytelling. So uh, okay. I'll try and drop a link in the chat for that too. Wonderful. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, it doesn't look like there's any more questions. I just want to say, guys, thank you for taking part of your weekend to come hang out with us. Be sure to subscribe to Comet ML's channel. Be sure to go check out Idelli's wonderful talk she did earlier this week about data validation and data pre-processing. Uh, if you haven't already, guys, make sure you go download Comet ML. I mean, it, it's not necessarily downloading it. You just sign up for it, pip install it, and then it's two lines of code. And then all of a sudden you're tracking all of your experiments. It is a wonderful tool. I uh, highly recommend exploring it completely free. Um, and it'll change the way you do your machine learning for sure. Um, so definitely sign up for it. Um, just comment.ml, right? Yeah. Super easy to to set up and and. You know, you're one pip install away from um, being able to actually track your experiments like a professional. Yeah. Uh, so definitely sign up for Comet ML, subscribe to their their uh, YouTube channel. And guys, this will be posted on my YouTube channel as well as the podcast. We'll have show notes and everything so you guys will know exactly where to jump in uh, if you wanted to revisit this conversation. You guys take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big, guys? Take care. Thanks, y'all.